Well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. You know, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but if you look around the room, it's gotten a little bit full, hasn't it? So, there's a couple things we want to encourage you in that with. Number one, um, those of you who are regularly here, we want you, we want to encourage you to do two things. Move up. That's A. Okay. Those two back rows, we want to keep those open, actually. We want to leave those empty uh, going forward. And then also, if you are here, move in. Okay. So that uh, as people come in, uh, a lot of times when people are visitors to a new place, they'll be looking for spaces in the back and on the end. So we want to make those comfortable for those who are new to come in and slide in uh, in a way that feels comfortable to them. So, uh, so, so be aware, okay, just pretend this is like the last concert that you will ever attend in your life and sit in the front, okay, and uh, not in the back, and then move toward the center rather than toward the, uh, toward the edges, okay? Uh, I know that that's not as comfortable for everybody, but... Um, in grace, we want to love love, uh, love each other well, love our visitors well. And so, like I say, move up, move in, and uh, you'll be good, all right? Uh, we are talking about the possibility of, uh, of actually opening up another service um, in, uh, in, in weeks to come. But before that would happen, we want to make the most use of the space we have in here. So uh, also, a couple other things. Uh, annual reports. If you um, are a member here at Silicon Bible Church, especially, I want to encourage you to pick up a copy of the annual report that is out in the foyer. Uh, that's all the ministry reports, the proposed budget, the proposed ballot for our officer election, etc. And you can find out what has happened in the last year, as well as uh, some pers- some prospective things that are, are going to be happening here going forward and what our budget situation looks like and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, with that, I want to pray for us. Uh, I especially want to pray for one thing in particular. You may have noticed this week there was a uh, there was a leaked Supreme Court draft opinion. It's not finalized. It may not be the final ruling. It may not even happen. Um, but if that opinion would be finalized, it would overturn Roe versus Wade, the decision in 1973 that legalized abortion across the United States, and return the authority for making that decision uh, to the individual state governments and make it not a federal issue whatsoever, uh, but make it make it a state issue. Now, in this country, on, on an average year, 850,000 babies are aborted totaling 62 million since 1973. This is a humongous moral issue. There are three generations of people who did not exist because of this decision. And uh, and I don't bring up in a church context very often issues that touch merely on politics, but this is an issue of right and wrong, good and evil. And I want to pray that that indeed is the decision that is handed down. And um, because this is one of the critical moral issues of our time. And so I want to pray for that, but also pray for our service uh, and our time in the Word. So if you would, 
Please join me in prayer. God, our Heavenly Father, when we consider that you are a just God, we tremble for the fate of our country and the wickedness that we have done over the last 50 years. Father, millions of children in the womb have been put to death. In about 99% of the cases, for no reason other than that their arrival would make life difficult. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for what we have done, what we have allowed to be done in this country. Father, we pray for our Supreme Court. We know that they are not the Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court is at your feet. But Father, here in our country, in, in a temporal sense, they are the Supreme Court. And we pray that they will do the right thing at long last and overturn decades of evil that have been done. Father, we know that will not mean that this is all over. There will be 50 states, one of which is the one in which we live. And in some of those states, including this one, abortion will, will still be legal on demand for any reason at all. And Father, we pray that you would help us. That you would pour out your grace on this country in a way that results in us starting even in a minimal way to do the right thing. Now that we are people who love darkness and we need your forgiveness, we need your renewal, we need your help. So Father, we pray for courage on the part of these men and women who will make this decision. And we pray that Roe versus Wade will be overturned fully and finally. And then that each of the 50 states would see that when it is a choice between life and death, that you encourage us in your word to choose life that we might live. Father, I pray too for our time in the word. Father, help us to see clearly what your word says to us. Help us to know you and to walk with you in obedience. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to continue. Is this wireless? I, it's on, but apparently it's not, uh, not working. So, um, technical, technical difficulties this morning. It's still on. <laughs> All right. Um, well, this morning we're going to continue our study through the book of Titus. Titus is one of three short books written by the Apostle Paul to a couple of pastors that he discipled and then sent out to minister. So as in our church, uh, so also in the ancient church that we make disciples, and then send them out to minister. We equip them to minister and uh, encourage them to do so. So uh, Titus is written to Pastor Titus, who was beginning his ministry 
to the brand new and growing churches on the island of Crete. And so as you make your way to, uh, to Titus, I want to tell you a quick story. I've probably told you this story before, um, but this message bears repeating in this context especially. When I was a young seminarian, in my first week at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, it was Spiritual Life Week. And the pastor who happened to be speaking was a pastor named Tommy Nelson, who's still preaching down in Denton, Texas, still faithfully, even though he is now an old man, I think he's 70-something, um, still faithfully preaching. And he stood up and he said to all of us seminarians, he said, you know, guys, when I was in seminary, the guys I looked up to, the guys I admired, were... Uh, we're the smart guys. He goes, you know, I went to the University of North Texas. I was a 2-5 phys ed major. Okay. He said, I was not the smartest guy on campus. He was the quarterback, one of the greatest quarterbacks North Texas State has ever had. They won four games in his four years. Um, but <laughs> in any case, he said, you know, my heroes when I got out of, into, into seminary were the smart guys. And he said, and, and, and then when I got into ministry, you know, my heroes were the gifted guys. You know, the guys that could take a church of like, you know, five people meeting in their garage, and then in like three years have 500 people meeting in an auditorium somewhere. And, you know, this gifted guy that could just do everything. And at the time, he said, I am now in my 50s. You know who my heroes are now? The old guys. The guys who live their entire life faithful. Who preach the Word of God as it lies on the page and held to it from the beginning of their ministry to the end. He says, because, you know, I found out something. I found out that the smart guys tend to rely on their smarts instead of on the Lord. And the guys that are gifted, they tend to be like shooting stars that just burn across the universe in an instant and are gone. And they're in and out of ministry in a matter of just a few years a lot of times. And I've discovered that Tommy was exactly right in that. The American church, if you look around, is in the middle of a leadership crisis. Because rather than look at the New Testament qualifications for leaders, we have looked instead at smart or at gifted or at both. And we have given those kinds of leaders a level of influence that very often, too often, far outruns their integrity. Amen? And we don't realize that's what we've done until the crash happens and we get another one of those stories in the Tribune or the... New York Times or whatever that we all hate reading about another well-known pastor, church leader who has taken uh, who has taken down out of his ministry by immorality or by an angry and domineering spirit or by a radical departure from the truth of God's word or by some other terrible sin. And I could give you a list of just the ones in the last two years of these kind of guys. Biblically qualified leadership is essential. There's no substitute for it. 
smart, gifted, good talker, good writer, doesn't make it work. Biblical qualified leadership is essential. And even though this is our 60th anniversary this year, 2022, 60 years of Chillicothe Bible Church. By the way, if you like this church, thank Dink and Nancy Lingenfelter. They're there in the back. They started this place along with some other men and women way back when as a Bible study. 60 years we've been here. Four generations of Christians have grown up and matured through this place. But we, no less than anybody else, need to consistently remember and put into practice what God says qualifies a man for leadership in his church. So I want to look at it with you. Uh, and if you would, please uh, stand if you're able. As I read verses uh, 5 through 9, of Titus chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that we would heed your word, that it would sink deeply into our hearts that we might not be led astray by the Pied Pipers of giftedness and intelligence and new and flashy ideas and programs. The new shiny object to come down the pipe of the Christian world. But that we would hold to men who seek your face and have His Word on their lips and in their heart and are transformed by Your Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray that You would raise up such men among us until the day when we see the Lord face to face. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well now, it might be obvious... But it is important nonetheless, uh, and so not for the sake of uh, being ultra-obvious, but for the sake of being ultra-obvious, elders lead the church. Verse 5, elders lead the church. In verse 5, Paul tells Titus to put things in order in these new churches there on the island of Crete. And the first step in that is to appoint elders in every place. And notice this, the word says, appoint elders, plural, in every place, singular. Okay? And so, that is, biblically speaking, the local church is led, not by an elder, but by a group of qualified leaders, elders. So there is no one king or ruler 
in the church except for one, the Lord Himself. And underneath Him are these, these groups of men, qualified leaders called elders. Churches get themselves into major trouble whenever they forget that and they start looking to somebody other than Jesus as the person around whom everyone has to turn. Right? People sometimes come to me, even here, and they say, well, pastor, what do you think we should do? And I'm like, well, I think we should talk to the elders and find out. <laughs> right? Because I am not in charge of this place. Jesus is in charge of this place. And your leaders, your elders, seek His face and find out what He wants us to do. Okay, That's why we need more than one of us. Because we don't always agree. Okay, Sometimes I express my opinion and uh, the other guys look at me and they go, yeah, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> we need to seek the Lord some more on this. And maybe we go a different direction. And that's why you need more than one person. Right? Um, in addition to that, the leaders, plural, of the church are called elders. Now, the original Greek word that we get translated into English is the word presbuteros. Okay? You don't need to know that. But what you do need to know is this. It means old men. The old guys. Uh, the idea here implied in verse 5 is that churches need to be governed by a plurality of leaders who are seasoned Christians. Guys who have been tested over time and found faithful. This is not the place for somebody who came to faith in Jesus like two weeks ago and now they want to be a leader. That is not how it works. You have to be tested and proven over time. To be a seasoned, faithful person. An old man, if you will. Somebody who's earned his stripes. You can't be, you can't be a buck private. You've got, to, you've got to earn your stripes. You've got to show yourself faithful over time. Now before we move on, let me say one more thing. All the remaining verses here are what qualifies someone to be part of this plurality of church leaders. So, so in other words, the church is governed by, by elders. Okay, well, what qualifies a guy to be an elder? And there are three areas. And, they're, and they all have to do with the kind of example that you set. They are these. That you have an exemplary home that you have an exemplary personal life, and that you are exemplary in your disciple-making. So that's what the rest of the passage is about, because there is real responsibility and real authority to the job, but before the job starts, you have to qualify to hold it, and you qualify by being ex exemplary in these three areas, your home, your personal life, and your disciple-making. Okay, so we want to look at each of those uh, areas here quickly. Uh, verse 6 talks about the example that an elder sets in his home. And by the way, just so I don't forget to mention it later, uh, this passage makes clear, elders are all men. 
Elders are all men. Now, if you have a disagreement with that, just be aware, I didn't write this. The Lord did. And so if you have disagreement here, it's not with me, it's with the book. Right? It is with the book that the Lord wrote. And so take it up with him. All right? Don't send me an email. All right? <laughs> um, but elders are all men. Uh, and that's why the pronouns are all masculine singulars, he and his. And this verse speaks of an elder as, quote, the husband. I know that's not a popular notion in some churches, but it is what the Father's Word says to us. And our job is not to criticize the Word, but to follow it. So in addition to being a man, an elder has to be a certain kind of man. And that is, he has to be the kind of man whose faith is lived out in his own house. He lives in his home in a way with his family that is above reproach. Now, let me be clear on what above reproach means. It does not mean sinless. It does not mean that. Uh, because if it meant sinless, then only Jesus would qualify to be an elder. Okay, it does mean that there is a pattern of consistence of consistency over a period of time of sinning less and of living your life in your home like a believer in Jesus Christ. That is consistent with your profession of faith in Christ so that there are no major or obvious areas of your home life that discredits your testimony. In other words, if you want to qualify to be an elder, we ought to be able to bring in your wife if you have one, and your kids if you have them, if they're old enough to know, if this is the kind of man that they admire and look up to. That they would be willing to follow not only in their home, but as a leader in the church. We ought to be able to ask your your wife and your kids, is this guy the kind of man at home that you would be happy to have leading you in other areas of your life? Because if the people who see you most and, are, and at the closest level don't admire you or see you following Jesus in a way that sets an example for them, then here's the question. Why should any of the rest of us follow you? Right? You need to be a man who sets an example at home. Another aspect of this is what the text says next. Uh, the text here says, the husband of one wife. Now there's a lot of debate about what that means exactly. Virtually everyone agrees that it excludes polygamy. So you can't have more than one wife. Um, it also doesn't require that an elder be married. Neither Paul, nor Titus, nor Jesus were married, and they all qualified. All right? So you don't have to be married, but the idea is, uh, it says that uh, where the point of discussion is, is whether divorced men can be elders. And here at Chili Bible, our answer to that question is that we think that you can if you have a long-term record of faithfulness and integrity, and how we understand this passage is to be evaluating the nature of a guy's relationship with women. Because the text literally reads, not husband, 
of one wife, but man of one woman. Okay? We consider that it has to do with man's sexual integrity, and related to that, if he is married, his faithfulness to his wife. So, for example, there's no room for guys who are adulterers, or porn addicts, or fornicators, or guys that have wandering eyes, or wandering hands. You have to be faithful to God, and if you have one, to your wife. You have to be a faithful man. It has to be your relationship with women has to be completely above board, and has to be completely above board for a long time. And related to that, there's a qualification that causes parents of teenagers to take a deep breath sometimes, and that's this. It says that the children in your home should be believers, should be submissive to you, and not running wild. Because the word here is to, refers to children under parents' authority. I don't think this applies to adult children who are accountable to God for themselves and the decisions that they're making. And since the word, word children here is plural, I think we have to consider all of them as a whole and the direction they're headed in, recognizing that every kid can have some tough seasons, right? Every kid can have some tough seasons where you're like, I tremble for the decisions they are making right now, right? Lord, get a hold of my child, right? And some of us, we've all prayed that prayer at times, right? But what's the direction of your children's life? And, and what do they look like as a whole? And the question is, are, the question being asked is this, are these, are, are, is this potential leader's kids being discipled well to follow Jesus by their dad? That's the question. Because what you do at home is what qualifies you for God's house. Okay? So if you can't make disciples in your own home, then you shouldn't try to make disciples to the whole group of us. So are you making disciples as a man in your own home? Home life matters. The church is God's household, and if you aren't doing well at the, at the micro level of your own house, then you need to wait to lead the larger household of God's people. So, Now let's look at the next question. Uh, the, your exemplary personal life. Uh, in addition to having a home life that's above reproach, an elder has to be above reproach in his personal life. That's verses 7 and 8. And if you look at this, you'll see two, descript two descriptions, five disqualifiers, and six essentials. Six things that you have to have. So looking first at the two descriptions, those are the word overseer, and the word steward. Okay. Um, the word overseer in the text is the word episkopos. Okay. It's often translated bishop, but it literally means epi, over, and skopos, see. <laughs> okay. To look over. You are, if you are an episcopos, you are the person who is looking over everything to make sure 
that it's going according to the way that it's supposed to go. You are overseeing, literally. That's what it means. And you are a steward. A steward is someone who does not own that which he uh, directs, but he is someone who will have to give an account to the one who does. Amen? So who owns the church? God does. If you are a steward within God's church, you will have to give an account to him. And the elders have a role as stewards of overseeing God's people and helping them to grow because we will all one day have to give an account before God for how we led. And if you are an elder, take a deep breath right there. (laughs) Because that is a serious responsibility. It's a serious responsibility. You have to give account for everybody else. Now, so being an elder does not mean you're in charge of the church. It means you're responsible. And you will give an account to someone else, to the Lord himself. So putting both together, an an elder is to oversee the ministry and the people of the church in such a way that they can give a good account to the master on the day he returns. Now, five disqualifying characteristics outlined in the rest of verse 7. He can't be arrogant. Church leadership is no place for somebody who thinks that he is God's gift rather than someone who thinks that he has been the recipient of great gifts from God and is amazed by that fact rather than puffed up about it. He also can't be quick-tempered. Leadership is not a place for a man whose first emotion is anger. He can't be a drunkard. So no addictions can rule his life. Uh, After all, the point of the gospel is that Jesus is powerful enough to set us free from what holds us enslaved. Amen? So you can't still be enslaved to various things uh, and be a good example of what Jesus does. (laughs) Because Jesus doesn't leave us enslaved. He does not intend for us to be enslaved to alcohol or to drugs or to pornography or some other, some other enslaving, addictive pattern of behavior. He intends for us to be set free. Um, in addition to that, he can't be violent. Nobody should be in fear for their safety around a church leader. Now, not violent is not the same thing as saying soft, not the same thing as saying weak, but it is to say that violence is almost always the wrong answer to any question. And so a man who is characterized by violence disqualifies himself. And lastly, he must not be greedy for gain. So the kind of men you're looking for as leaders, are the kind who, rather than looking to leadership as a way of making money, look at leadership as something they would happily pay to do. Because word of encouragement, if you become an elder, you will pay a great deal, though not necessarily monetarily, in order to do that. You will pay in terms of lost sleep. You will pay in terms of constant prayer. 
you will pay in terms of worry and concern and time and the consumption of a lot of your energy and life to adequately care for the needs of God's people. So if you are in it for what you get out of it rather than what you can give to it, you have exactly the wrong attitude. (laughs) You carry the weight of responsibility and love and care for the troubled, the hurting, the wounded, the wandering sheep all around you, and you carry these things before the Lord on their behalf. And that weighs on you over time. So you need to be looking to be a person who is there to enrich people by your life and your presence and your gift to them rather than looking at at them as a way to enrich yourself. On the flip side of these disqualifiers are six essential qualities in verse 8. The first one is hospitable. Elders need to be warm-hearted people who have open homes and open hearts and welcome of all types into both, their heart and their house. Uh, Next is a lover of good. Uh, That is, the elder cannot rejoice in wicked things, but must love virtue and those things that help people and do them good. Next you see self-control. The word here often carries a sexual connotation, but the idea is broader than that merely. And it has the idea of living in a way that you rule over your body and its desires. Next is the word upright, which is the idea of living in in a way that is true and level with God's word. Where God speaks, that's what your life conforms to. Uh, After that is the word holy, meaning that his life resembles Jesus' life to an increasing degree. He is a godly man. And last, you see the word disciplined. In other words, an elder is someone who rigorously practices those biblical habits that lead to increasing godliness. And so he prays regularly. He worships Faithfully, he reads his Bible continually, etc. His life is controlled by a devotion to the Lord every day of his life. And then last, look at verse 9. You see exemplary discipleship. And verse 9 outlines the last part here, being an elder, that you engage in exemplary discipleship. And there are three components to that. One, he himself must hold to the trustworthy word as taught. You see that there? Hold to the trustworthy word as taught. In other words, you have to be someone who holds fast to God's word, not only because you know it, but because you believe it, and you accept it as God's word from Genesis 1-1 all the way through the end of Revelation 22. That every word on the page is the word of God, and you accept it and believe it, and hold fast to it, and direct your life by it. Leadership in the church has no room for somebody who wants to be the Bible's editor and take out all of the stuff that he doesn't like. Uh, So bottom line, an elder has to be a man of the word who loves it and holds every part of it. And that's essential because his exemplary discipleship then has two aspects. Number one, 
giving instruction in sound doctrine, and number two, rebuking those who contradict it. So being an overseer and a steward makes you responsible as an elder to teach what is true and what aligns with the Bible and to rebuke those who teach falsehood. And both of those things require courage. Both of those things require courage. On the one hand, it's easy to put up with those things that are kind of Christianity because people don't like being told that their so-called favorite Bible teacher or that their favorite book that they've been reading is heretical garbage. But there's a lot of heretical garbage that is out there that you can even buy from Christian book distributors. But it is heretical garbage nonetheless. And an elder has to be courageous enough to say so to people and to invite them to turn away from that stuff and to embrace what the Bible actually teaches. And also, teaching truth is hard because many times, even Christians in our day struggle to embrace the actual truth that the Bible proclaims. They go, well, I don't like that. I know the Bible says that, but I don't like it. You go, well, you know, Billy Sunday, the great evangelist, had this great line. Somebody told him, Billy, you know, you're rubbing the fur the wrong way on people. And he said, well, then turn the cat around. <laughs> okay. The Bible is meant for us, the cat, to turn around, right? Not for us to vote on whether we like it or not. It is for, it's for us to adapt our life to it, not the other way around. But an elder sets an example in his discipleship. So, how does this passage apply to us here at Silicon Bible Church? Because after all, we are already an elder-led congregation, just like the Bible teaches. And we are led by admirable men. If you haven't gotten to know them, you should. If you haven't gotten to know Josh, and Kenton, and Kurt, and Rick, and Carl... These are God-honoring, Jesus-loving, disciple-making men, and they are good, and we are blessed to have them. We are blessed to have them. But how does, how does this passage apply to us? What possible relevance does this all have to us? I want to just outline two important ways. Number one, if you're a man, you need to strive to qualify this. In a certain sense, this is a high standard of behavior in life, but in another sense, if you actually believe that the gospel actually has transformative, life-altering, life-shaping power, that the Holy Spirit actually lives within you, then this is totally attainable by every single man in this world. This is not above you and beyond you. And if you're a man, you need to strive to live out your life consistent with the Word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that you might become exactly this kind of man. 
Every Christian man should strive to have an exemplary home life, an exemplary personal life, to, have a, to be an exemplary disciple-making dude. There is, nothing, there is nothing in this that is anything less than your calling from Jesus as a man. This passage makes clear that this that the church of Jesus Christ is not met, is not led by super saints. It is led by a bunch of ordinary guys who are actually crazy enough to try to live out the faith they profess. That's it. If you are crazy enough to actually try to live like Jesus, then you become, over time, one of these people. And people, even outside of our church, ought to be able to look at every single one of us men. And I put myself in here too. They ought to be able to look at every single one of us and say, I am not a Christian, but if I ever became one, I would like to be one like that man. Because it is clear that he has been with Jesus. Remember that's what they said about the disciples? As they took note that though they were uneducated men, in other words, a bunch of ordinary guys like us, they weren't the smartest, they weren't the, it wasn't all the rocket scientists of the world. It was a bunch of ordinary fellows. They took note of the fact that they had been with Jesus because of what kind of guys they were. And we dare not look at this standard and say to ourselves, well, no way I can ever do that. Because our God is big and He is powerful and He transforms every single person who yields their life to Him. And so if you're a man and you need help growing into this, i got a challenge for you. Get yourself in a disciple-making group. we got a bunch of them. Carl, B.C., would you shoot your hand up right there? This is Carl. Carl is one of our elders, and I am proud to serve with him. And if you're not in a group helping you become a disciple-making person, you need to see Carl today and get yourself in a group. And he'll help you, and I'll help you, because there's nothing greater than seeing men lay hold of the Word of God and have it lay hold of their life in a way that changes them from the inside out. Now, if you're a church member, then let me also say this. You have to insist on nothing less than this in your leadership. The church of Jesus Christ is too important. Some of you are college students, and you're going to go out of this place, and you're going to go change the world in some other location. And praise God for you. But wherever you go, you have to insist on this. That you cannot have unqualified people leading you. We hold the mission of Jesus Christ, after all, in our hands. And we hold the gospel that we have to share with a world of lost people to win. There are over 250 
million lost people in this country alone, and their souls matter. And so that the church would be the repository of the gospel, would be a well-led place, would be a safe place where predators do not have entry. Where the narcissist is not allowed to lead. Where those who are in it for the money are shown the door. Or told where to sit that they might learn how to walk with Jesus instead of lead the place. You hear what I'm saying? This is vital stuff. And it is vital not only for the church, it is vital for a, an absolute world full of billions of people who don't know Jesus. And too often don't see any difference between what goes on in the church and what goes on in some other organization that they're part of. There's got to be a radical distinction. And so if you are a member of a church, you have got to insist on being led by exemplary men with exemplary home lives and exemplary personal character and, and who are exemplary at making disciples. We have to stop being willing to follow every two-bit narcissist who sounds good talking and writes a nice book or has a sick reel that they post on TikTok. We have got to do better. We cannot put up with someone who is a terrible husband or a lousy father or who is angry and domineering or greedy and violent and addicted and lustful. We need Jesus men. We need men who know Jesus and look like Him to an increasing degree. Men who will show and tell how to follow Jesus. And who will then lead us faithfully and humbly and gently and hospitably closer to Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, when we read a passage like this, we, we look at ourselves in the mirror and we go, Oh, Lord, help me to live a blameless life. Help me to be worthy of the standard You've set in Your Word. Help me, Father, to live up to this. To be the best version of myself instead of slightly better than average. Father, help us to be discerning about what kind of men are needed in the church. Help us to be the kind of men that are needed. And Father, let us insist that Your Word will have first place in our hearts, in our churches, in our lives. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.